Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Maybe it'd be good if we started out by explaining to our listeners why we decided to do this and what we hope this podcast today and into the future will provide for our listeners. How does that sound as a start? Sounds wonderful. Um, In particular, uh, I have a lot of friends and family members who are concerned about the 2020 election and everything that's going on, but they don't quite understand um, what all of it means. And so this podcast is a, a good way to facilitate some understanding about maybe complex legal principles with um, what people are saying on the news. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, unfortunately, this election year, maybe the hardest one that America's had to handle for a long, long time. And therefore, the kind of conversation that we're having together, I hope will be helpful to people to kind of think about what to look for, what to expect, when to worry, when it's time to worry, when not to worry, when it's not time to worry, just to kind of make sense of it all. And uh, I wanted to do this with you because I think we respect each other's scholarship. Um, We know each other a little bit. We've gotten to know each other over the last few years from our scholarly writings and interactions. Uh, But we bring some different things to the table, and I think it's useful to have a conversation uh, that has different points of view. And uh, there may be some overlaps in what we think, but there'll be some differences in what we think. And you know, I come from a Midwest state. You're in California. There's obviously differences of gender, background, et cetera, et cetera. And hopefully we can have a kind of conversation that's valuable for all sorts of listeners. Absolutely. So the other thing that I think that the, you and I both share uh, an appreciation for is even though we're election law scholars, our focus is law. We're here talking about 2020, the here and now, what to expect this year. We've also looked at history for guidance, uh, all the way back to the founding, but also the horrors of the Civil War and the aftermath of Reconstruction, uh, the whole sweep of American history. And I do think that for us to get a grasp of what's going on today uh, and to make sense of it all, to try to make sense of it all, that historical perspective helps. And so I'm hopeful that starting today and into the future of our conversations, we draw upon our interest in history, our knowledge of history to help illuminate the present and the future. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think for a lot of people, the current time feels unprecedented. And so history does provide uh, at least some mechanism of determining whether or not you should panic, right? Because we can look to the past and see if there are incidents in our electoral history that are similar to what's going on now. And um, we can draw parallels, we can we can learn lessons, and we can sort of look to those as examples for you know guidance for the future in a, in a very important way. So I think the podcast will be helpful for people who are looking for some marker or metric or r- really a barometer for where we stand historically um, in this moment. Yeah, that, that, I agree with that. Um, the other thing that I've been struggling with in my own work, and I'd be really interested in your take on this, is to me, when we think about elections and we think about democracy, we have to separate the ideal and the vision of like a perfect democracy from what we American can operationally achieve in the moment. So for example, you know, a lot of people talk about the electoral college, we'll probably come back and talk about that specifically. But 
many people think that just the Electoral College is like inherently unfair because, after all, there can be a deviation between the popular vote and the Electoral College. We saw that in 2016. We saw that in 2000. And that's true. On the other hand, until we change it, is our, it's our system. So if you take the position that every American election is unfair as long as there is an Electoral College, <laughs> we've never had a fair election ever, and we'll never have a fair election until we get rid of it. And yet that seems inconsistent with our sort of sense that, okay, it's not a great system, but we can. there is something to be said for some of our elections actually are fair, even in an imperfect system. I agree with that. I, a lot of the criticism of the Electoral College happens to coincide with times in which the, uh, the winner of the presidential election has lost a popular vote. And so during those times, you, you do get a sense from at least one segment of the population that our elections are not fair because you have someone in the Oval Office who didn't win the popular vote. Um, but generally speaking, in times where the popular vote and electoral college align, you don't really hear those criticisms. But in reality, that is when we should be we should have these conversations about fixing our system. Unfortunately, we have these conversations at times when things are, quote unquote, going wrong or uh, when people feel like the system is unfair. Um, when in reality, I think, if anything, the lesson of 2000 is that the quest to uh, perfect our system of elections is something that should be an ongoing project as well, as opposed to something that occurs when everything is going wrong. For sure. Um, and to kind of broaden the point out a little bit, I mean, I think we should just put it on the table right in front that, you know, for most of American history, our elections were unfair measured by ability to participate. After all, women couldn't vote for much of American history, African-Americans, slavery, you know, all of the problems. There were, you had to own property at the beginning. So for a long period of time, we had unfair elections. And we may still do in many respects. On the other hand, I think our, our, we've all, maybe we've been deluding ourselves as a country, but we started our country with a constitution that says it speaks for we the people. And we always at least thought we had a democracy even when women couldn't vote, even with slavery. And so even in a horrible system, there was a conception of fair elections under that system that deviated from elections that went wrong under that system, where there was cheating even in a world where women couldn't vote, for example. And although fortunately we now have a much better system than we used to, it's not a perfect system, and I think we need a conception, if, since we're talking about our podcast as being uh, free and fair elections, what's a free and fair election for 2020? What's the possible expectation of the election going properly this year, given imperfections that are going to exist this year, no matter what? To build on a point, I, if you look at the history, the fact that we had a system in which there was an ideal of democracy, um, in which, in a system in which African Americans couldn't vote, in which women couldn't vote, um, and other people of color could not cast a ballot. Uh, what that tells us, in my view, is that there's really no ideal that we can draw on, right? That the project of We the People is something that is, uh, maybe that's the ideal that we're working towards, but it becomes really difficult to look at our past elections and, and, and choose an election as an ideal, when for so long we had a system of elections in, in which uh, large seg segments of the population could not participate. Um, so and, and that actually doesn't trouble me. Right. Because I like the idea of 
of working towards an ideal, right? A, a system in which people can vote unencumbered, right? If a person is a legitimate voter, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about what legitimate means in this context, but if a person is a legitimate voter, then they should be able to cast a ballot, right? There shouldn't be artificial barriers put up to make voting more difficult for people who are otherwise legitimate voters. Um, if that is the ideal that we're working towards, and history can teach us lessons about how to bypass some of the um, obstacles that have been put up in, in front of broad participation, then I think that is a conversation that's definitely worthwhile. Yes, yes. But here's where I wonder whether there's a slight difference of opinion in your perspective and mine, which is worth exploring, and that is, I think we should have conversations about what the ideal should be and to the extent to which we deviate from it now. But what I really want for 2020 is some working conception of free and fair elections that America can use even in our non-ideal current situation. Because I want, I want to be able to get through 2020 with our listeners and the public being able to judge for themselves whether the system worked or didn't work as expected given our current non-ideal situation. And so if the only metric we have is an ideal metric, then I don't think we have that other thing that we need because it, it's definitely not going to be ideal. There's no doubt about that. But, And I hope that we can have an outcome at the end of November of 2020 that we say, yeah, our flawed system, still flawed, but it worked according to its own terms. And so measured that way, it was successful. But if it doesn't even work that way and that it was a disaster and it failed, I think we ought to be able to tell that too. But if we don't have a test for how the current system either passes or fails and all we have is an ideal, then we don't know what we're talking about and then we're really, really confused. But I think that ignores the reality that a lot of this project of democracy has been aspirational, right? If you can tell me, Ned, any election in the last 200 years that you can point to as an ideal or as a election that you would categorize as free and fair, then maybe that's a starting point, right? Because we can start there and, and sort of proceed in thinking about what else is required in order to get towards the, the goal of a free and fair election by, what, by however we define that term. Um, but... I think that your comments raise another question. What does it mean for the system to work exactly, right? Because I think for far too long, we've thought about the system working because the president is elected. Um, even if the president is elected as a product of a flawed process, because there are no tanks in the street on Wednesday, the Wednesday after election day, I think a lot of people consider that to be the system working. And maybe that's something that we should revisit. Right. Maybe the system didn't work if large segments of the population were not allowed to cast a ballot or if um, in, in the administration of elections, a lot of people are disenfranchised. Maybe that means that the system didn't work, even if we, you know, by some miracle managed to elect a president. And so I think fundamentally our conception of the system working has to change, because even after the election of 2000, right, where for a lot of people in my generation, that was the worst that it could get. Right. Because after Election Day, we didn't know who the president was. Two weeks after that, we didn't know who the president was. Like it was a, a crazy time, um, particularly as a young person casting a ballot for the first time. Um, but a lot of people will say that the system still worked. Right. Because at the end of the day, George Bush became president. There were no tanks in the street. And so I invite you to revisit the conception of the system working because I would posit that maybe the system didn't work. Right. In Florida, significant portions of the population, particularly people of color, were disenfranchised in the 2000 election illegitimately, 
right? And, and to me, that raises a different question about who is the system working for? And that's something we should talk about in thinking about 2020. Yes. And I agree with you that people were wrongly disenfranchised in Florida in 2000, and that was horrible and, and not remedied and part of the problem. And I do think 2000 raises some complicated issues that hopefully we'll get to talk about. Uh, but, And I also accept your challenge that in some sense, no American election has ever um, complied with an ideal uh, standard. And yet I don't want to say that we've never had free and fair elections. Um, as you know uh, from my work that I try to be nonpartisan in my analysis, so I try not to make partisan points. I, I believe strongly that a healthy electoral system has a vibrant two-party competition. And, and, and frankly, I worry if, if there's a world in which sort of one party doesn't want to play fair and the other party does, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, that too. Uh, but uh, but I, I look at um, you know, the two elections of President Obama as elections that exceeded, not just because people voted for Obama and he won and therefore they were happy, but because it, that ele those elections were not marred by the kind of disenfranchisement, uh, consequential disenfranchisement that, that 2000 uh, had. I mean, there were long lines in, in Obama's victory. That's why there was a commission that he put in place, a bipartisan commission, to deal with the long line problem. So there was still some disenfranchisement in some of his victories. And so it was not a perfect election from a process perspective. But I think America got a president that America chose. And frankly, I think in 2004, to pick a more recent one, which had a, a winner of the opposite party, I do think 2004 was an election where America got a, the president that they chose. Um, and of course, we're not going to talk just about presidential elections. The system has to work all the way up and down the ballot. But obviously, people are particularly interested in presidential elections. This is a presidential election year. And I think, I, I, I think it is an acceptable premise to say that notwithstanding the imperfections of our system that by and large, we have had presidential elections where the winner is the one chosen by the electorate that participated. Um, 2000 is a problematic exception. There may be a couple others that we should talk about. And of course, for most of American history, most Americans couldn't participate. And that was a fundamental unfairness at that level. Uh, but I believe Lincoln won authentically an election where women were disenfranchised, but, the, but there was a conception of his victory that was authentic according to the system as it existed at the time. You know, I think that's even true of Thomas Jefferson going way back. And so I'm trying to capture a notion of authentic results for an imperfect system and then ask the question, will 2020 be authentic in that sense? Or do we have to worry that it might be inauthentic in the way that people worried that 2000 wasn't authentic? So one thing I don't mean to suggest is that um, I expect things to be perfect, right? Like, I, I, I'm not one of those people who think that, the, you know, I don't want perfect to be the enemy of the good. Um, but I do think we have to earn the title. So if we want to be called a democracy, right, then we, we have to earn that title, right? If we're more of a republic then that is something that's conceptually different, right? I think republicanism is something that could accommodate a system in which 
significant portions of the population are disenfranchised, right? Even as Republican theory talks about majoritarianism, right? Because really it's a majority of what? Um, so I think that's entirely possible. When we call ourselves a democracy, though, I think that that argument becomes less defensible. Democracy suggests a type of broad participation in which, you know, there are more groups that are within the tent. Um, so given that, um, I don't think we have to cleanse prior elections necessarily. So I agree that there are conceptions of um, of democratic theory that existed in 1860 that could justify Abraham Lincoln's uh, victory, even if women couldn't vote. And even though there were, you know, sl there was slavery and there were still free African-Americans who were disenfranchised and so on. Right. Like there is um, one can certainly make a case under democratic theory that his his um, election is still legitimate. So I'm not I'm not necessarily trying to judge prior elections by today's standards. But I am judging our standards by our elections by a kind of a post-1965 view of the world, right? So to the extent that we've had a Voting Rights Act that has expanded um, the uh, the segments of society that can participate in our elections. And, and this is true despite Shelby County, right? The other provisions of the Voting Rights Act certainly still remain in force, even if the court has invalidated the preclearance pr provision, which... Um, required certain jurisdictions to pre-clear changes to their elections with the federal government before those changes could go into effect. So even if jurisdictions don't have to pre-clear any changes, they can still be subject to liability under the Voting Rights Act. So functionally, what that means is that people, they still have an obligation to ensure that certain segments of their population could vote, right? Um, we also have a National Voter Registration Act, which is an, an, another piece of federal legislation designed to expand access to registration and voting, right? So so given that our laws have uh, articulated a definition of the, the relevant political community here in a way that points towards inclusiveness, I'm judging it by that standard, right? So, so for me, the ideal is that um, not that, you know, our elections have to sort of comport with elections that have happened in our past, but our elections do um, have to comport with the vision that has been laid out by um, amendments to our Constitution since the 1960s, right? It's getting rid of the poll tax, expanding the electorate to 18-year-olds, for example, um, and also changes in, in federal voting rights legislation. To me, those things point towards a, a, a broad electorate and uh, a broad extension of the franchise to, to more people, such that I do think that if we are going to call ourselves a democracy, we have to honor that. Um, so I don't quibble at all with this idea that, you know, in, in elections in the antebellum era, in the founding era, that um, even though certain segments of the population were excluded, that there was still a narrative that you can tell about those elections being authentic by those standards. I think by today's standards, we are operating under a completely different framework than uh, that was then that which was in place in the 18th century. Yeah, that, I think that was a really, really important and very helpful point in terms of clarity and and values. Um, I shared what you said that you know 1965 is a turning point with the Voting Rights Act, and I do think both it and the Warren Court precedents of Reynolds versus Sims and so forth of that era created a new conception of democracy for America that was inclusive and captured by the slogan "One Person, One Vote." Uh, and, and so I do think that is a good metric by which to judge going forward whether or not our elections are performing according to that standard. And, and so therefore, by that metric, I think you can then say, yeah, we've had some elections where 
presidents of different parties have won complying with the basic one-person-one-vote vision of the Voting Rights Act and those uh, Supreme Court decisions, you know, whether it was Richard Nixon's landslide re-election victory in 1972 or Jimmy Carter's victory in, in 76, or then, again, fast forward to Obama and 2004, George W. Bush. We've had a bunch of elections where we've kind of met that standard. And so that's useful to see whether or not the 2020 election will be compliant with that standard as well. It just seems really odd to to have a 50-year trajectory towards expanding access to the ballot and then have all of these changes post-2013 um, that states have adopted to uh, basically constrict the electorate, right? Let's put intent and motivation to the side, right? They could act for partisan reasons, and in some cases, courts have found them to have acted for racial reasons. But let's put that to the side. Um, just in terms of, like, historically, if you look at, what has happened over the last five decades? What's going on now just seems really out of step with um, a trend towards expanding access to the ballot. And I think that in and of itself is problematic, even if we're arguing about um, related questions about motivation and intent and effect, which are also important. I'm not discounting them. But just in terms of like the historical trend towards more access to the ballot, every, a lot of things that are happening right now seem very out of step with that. Um, and, and it makes, in my view, makes it difficult for us to continue to call ourselves a democracy when these things are going on. Fair enough. And, you know, some people have talked about the civil rights era of the Voting Rights Act and the Warren Court that we were talking about as sort of America's second reconstruction, mm -hmm. the second attempt to undo the vestiges of racism and discrimination. And, you know, the first reconstruction failed because it collapsed and led to a frankly, a reign of terror uh, in the aftermath. It was just horrible. And then we needed the, the, the civil rights era to undo that. It took a long time. It took another century. Um, and I think people, some people rightly fear that we're in the midst of, if not a collapse, a rollback or a backsliding of the second reconstruction. I hope not. And we have to be vigilant and watch out for it. And I think that's got to be part of the conversation going forward. Um, but one reason why I hope we can talk a little bit about the impeachment trial that's going on in, in, in the news today is I think that the 2016 election and the Russian disinformation campaign and the conversation about American democracy in the aftermath of that and then the current impeachment trial has caused America's uh, self-confidence in its own democracy to shake in, or in a way that that is another layer of complexity beyond the points that you just raised. In other words, um, let's take, Renita, what you just said about uh, the vision after 1965 of what a democracy is. Then you, you'd think as long as we cast votes and count them and participate in accordance with that one person, one vote, you know, maximum participation vision, we're doing what we call American democracy. Uh, and yes, we have to worry if we have something like 2000 or we have to worry if there's backsliding in terms of voter suppression or hindering the voting process. But the way in which people talk about Russia hacking our democracy or taking our democracy away from us suggests we don't know if we can have a democracy even if consistent with one person, one vote, we all participate and we cast ballots and we count them properly, that somehow Russia may take our democracy away from us, 
or the incumbent in the White House may take our democracy away from us if he cheats with Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that is provoking some anxiety and some legitimate questions about what do we mean by American democracy that makes the current conversation more complicated and the need for our podcast and our conversation even more urgent. So, Ned, I think it's really interesting that you are thinking about this in terms of defining democracy, which I think is a really important question. But I also think we have to define taking or taken. So um, is Russia taking our democracy? Has the president taken our democracy by asking Ukraine to investigate Vice President Biden and his son? Um, I think that's a very difficult question, and it's it's really uh, important in thinking about voter choice. The podcast is called Free and Fair, and when we think about um, free, um, we think about it in terms of voters being able to cast ballots without undue in- influence, right? Undue interference. Um, so this question of of whether or not our democracy is being taken and thinking about that that particular question in the context of foreign interference really does tie into important conceptions of when a voter has cast a ballot. Uh, free of uh, undue influence and interference. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're asking the question, and and I hope we continue to explore it, uh, not just today, but in future episodes of our podcast. But my um, starting position on this topic is that we ought to draw a sharp distinction between two types of foreign interferences or domestic interferences. So just thinking about this, kind of brainstorming with you on this, I, I would say type one is a direct attack on voter choice, disenfranchising, stopping voters from casting ballots that they want to cast, or erasing their ballots that they've cast, or stuffing the ballot box. I mean, there are different ways to negate popular sovereignty by just frustrating the will of the electorate. The electorate wants something, and you're denying it. Uh, You know, Putin could do that, domestic actors could do that, and that would be a denial of democracy. And and a reported result that allowed that to happen, I would think, would be illegitimate. It would would undermine the the goal of having an election in the first place. The second type of interference or attack, an influence campaign, a disinformation campaign of the kind that Russia did in 2016, I think is really malevolent. It's awful. We should try to deal with it as best we can, but it doesn't negate voter choice in the same way. It manipulates voter choice. Maybe it undermines what we mean by free and fair, but it's not the same thing. And and if we say that elections that result because voters have been persuaded by something they shouldn't have been persuaded by, we have to open up, I think, a lot of elections. Uh, An example that I think about that I know you know, again, going back to 2004, is the so-called Swift Boat ad against John Kerry. Uh, many uh, fact-check journalist-type organizations labeled that a malicious lie trying to undermine his military record deliberately to hurt him. He thought it made a difference in the election. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Um, but if it did affect the outcome, it did through through the mental process of voters deciding what to do. Did they want Bush? Did they want Kerry? Did they decide to stay home because they didn't just trust anybody? That kind of attack is bad. We should call it out. But it's not the same thing as, you know, stuffing a ballot box in the old-fashioned way or using a cyber attack to stuff the ballot box or a power outage to stop the electrical grid that prevents voters in a certain location from voting. And it seems to me that as we worry about 
2020 and we imagine all the things that might happen that we don't happen and we wonder, is America capable of holding an election that qualifies as free and fair, I think we should draw a distinction between these two types of threats and two types of attacks. Because, again, I don't want our president to be trying to get assistance from a foreign country, whether it's Ukraine or any other. I don't want it to have happened in the past. I don't want to have it happen in the future. But I want to be able to know whether the result in November is actually the result that the voters have chosen, whether they did so for reasons that I agree with or disagree with, whether they were persuaded by good advertising and messaging on the airways or they were persuaded by social media or other media outlets that I think is deceptive. They get to make their choice for whatever reasons they want. Um, I hope they make good choices and I hope they are not dissuaded by lies or deception. But I just want to know whether they've made a choice and whether we've the choice that we report is the the outcome is actually the choice the voters made. And if and if the answer is no, I want to say we don't have a democracy anymore, at least not in 2020. But if the answer is yes, then I want to say, well, then the, the system worked in a sense, even if it's not the outcome I like. Sympathetic to that view, but I don't know if I agree, right? I, I resist the idea that um, some choice is, is better than no choice, right? <laughs> because, um, it, you know, I, I kind of take your comments as saying, as long as at the end of the day, we can discern who a winner, who the winner is, then... Um, we are OK with how voters have voted. We don't care how they're influenced. Um, and I and to some extent, I recognize the difficulty. First Amendment doctrine makes it very difficult to, to regulate political lies. Right. It, it very it makes it very difficult to regulate the sort of misinformation campaign that the Russians engaged in here. Um, and even if domestic sources pick up the same sort of information and perpetuate it, it's, it's difficult to regulate. Um, but that being said. I do think that, especially if I'm still in this post-1965 framework, right, where so much emphasis has been put on um, historically disadvantaged groups being able to elect their candidate of choice, um, choice becomes very important, right, in, in sort of thinking about what we want our democracy to look like. And I resist this idea that it is okay to, um, as long as we have a winner, right, we should validate any mechanism that produces the winner, um, as long as it doesn't you know, it's not completely illegitimate. Uh, so to, to make the, more, the point more concretely, uh, we don't know the extent to which uh, Russian interference, um, whether or not it, it undermined the 2016 election, right? I think that the uh, Mueller report concluded that it wasn't outcome determinative, right? Um, but it, we don't know the, the, the impact that it actually had, right? And in, and in particular, um, it's entirely possible that um, even if the outcome wouldn't change, we should still care about the manner in which the president was elected, right? The president should still care about the manner in which he was elected. Why is that? Because if people don't believe in the process, that could still have the effect of undermining the outcome, even if the outcome is legitimate, right? So it's entirely, so to be clear, I agree that Russian interference, President Trump will probably still be President Trump. But at the end of the day, we should still care and the government should still care about Russian interference because people have to believe in the process. It's not just about the outcome. Yes, but this is why I'm really worried about where we are in 2020. Not so much of what might actually happen, but just our conversation, not 
you and me, Frenita, today, but just our national conversation at this moment, because I think, again, we've lost our moorings a little bit. I mean, it seems to me that we ought to be able to say that even if Russia did affect some voters, enough voters, that President Trump is still a winner in the same way that President Bush was a winner after 2004 if the swift boat campaign affected voters. Um, now, it's true that Putin is a foreign adversary, and he might have used his military to try to do disinformation. That's a little bit different than domestic political actors. But disinformation is disinformation, whatever the source. They're lies, they're malicious, and they might affect how voters think about it. But they don't change the ballots cast and the ballots counted. And so if, if we know that we've got an accurate count of the vote in 2004 and nobody was, or not enough people were wrongly disenfranchised by long lines and other issues, and we know the same thing about 2016, then we have legitimate winners in the sense that the person sitting in the Oval Office is the person chosen by the voters, even if the voters were affected by things that they shouldn't have been, whether it was Putin or the swift boats. Um, and it seems to me it's important to be able to, to say to say that and distinguish that, again, from a situation where voters are not uh, allowed to make a choice and that there's been a genuine denial of the one person, one vote, 1965 consensus that people should be able to participate. And one of the reasons why I think the current moment about impeachment is really problematic in this respect is that um, you, I understand completely why the impeachment trial went forward and was appropriately framed as it was because President Trump, it does seem the evidence shows, was attempting to abuse the power of his office to try to get an electoral advantage uh, that was unfair in the sense of, you know, the Democrats use the term cheating, and he was trying to get Ukraine to do this unjustified investigation of, of his potential opponent, the Bidens, then it was a distortion and manipulation of the process that shouldn't have happened. I think of it as like outsourcing a swift boat campaign to a foreign, uh, you know, country. Um, but it's still conceptually a version of swift boating, um, and and what the Democrats said in the trial was as a consequence of that, they said we can't be assured that the November 2020 vote is going to be a valid vote. I'm kind of paraphrasing now. I don't have the transcript in front of me. As long as the incumbent president is on the ballot in November for re-election, and therefore he needs to be removed and disqualified from running again because of the cheating that he's done and the, and the cheating that he might do. And, and it seems to me embedded into that claim is that we can't have a, a functional democracy if we've got these kind of swift boat type disinformation campaigns in existence and maybe coming with the acquiescence of the of the White House or the instigation of the White House. Um, I think that's too high a standard. Again, I don't want disinformation. I don't want deceit. I don't want it from Putin. I don't want it from the Oval Office. I don't want it from the Swift Boat groups or PACs or Citizens United or anybody else. Um, but I think as I think the voters have to be able to judge the information that they get and then cast a, a ballot and that we are able to say this was a valid result 
uh, because the voters chose this result in the information, the environment that existed. And so essentially the impeachment proceeding is important because what the president has done is deprive voters of free choice. Well, I see, I, I, I think the president on the, on the case made by the Democrats did attempt to cheat in the sense of did attempt wrongfully to manipulate the process. But I don't think he deprived the voters of free choice. I think maybe because he was caught. But I think regardless of the outcome of the trial, and, and again, we don't know what the end of the Democratic nomination process is going to be, but I think um, the American electorate today could freely and fairly decide Trump versus Biden, who do they prefer, notwithstanding the wrong conduct that Trump did vis-a-vis Ukraine. I don't think he irretrievably negated free choice. He did something wrong. He shouldn't have done it. He should be maybe be censured for it by the Senate. It should be called out as completely inappropriate behavior. But I don't think it undermined democracy to the point where Americans now are incapable of a free and fair vote in November. I, I don't. I don't know if I agree with that, Ned. Like, imagine if it, if if the scheme was successful, right? So the U- Ukrainian president actually calls for investigations of the Bidens, right? Um, November rolls around. Um, the people who are voting will undoubtedly be influenced by the call for investigations. Somebody somewhere, right? We don't know the number of people, but people are influenced by that, even if the investigations ultimately yield nothing, right? So I, it, it's hard for me to think of that as a situation of uh, a free choice, right? Especially if he's calling for investigations for something that shouldn't necessarily be investigated, right? The whole point of this is to influence the outcome of the 2020 election, um, so I guess, you know, part of our disagreement is this notion of when voters are actually operating under free choice and what we should do about it. Um, so the answer might be there's nothing we can do about it, right? Because people are influenced by all types of things. Like, for example, one of the reasons why Citizens United is a really important case is because it, um, you know, it opens the door for tons of money in our political system and money influences voters, right? Money spent on campaigns, money spent running ads, money money influences voter choice, right? So um, perhaps the idea that voters are able to vote, uh, able to exercise their right to vote in a way that is not influenced by outside sources, maybe that is just too idealistic to even contemplate, right? Um but but I do think that there is something fundamentally different here than just, you know, saturating the Iowa market with uh, relentless ass in order to influence Iowa voters. Right. Um, there is something fundamentally different about inviting a foreign power into our elections and having that influence voter choice going into November in ways that we don't think about as traditional traditional sources of influence. Um, and and I, I guess I resist the idea that in that situation, a voter is exercising a ballot that is uh, free of influence in, in the same way as when a voter has been influenced by um, ridiculous sums of money. Right. So it just it just seems to me that that is not democracy. That is not when I think about free and fair elections, I don't think about voters who have been influenced by, um, you know, foreign countries in, in voting for the American president as a voter exercising a choice that's free and fair. And so I, I think I resist it, um, and I think I can still resist it while conceding that I'm not sure what we should do about it. There may be nothing we can do, right? Like I recognize that First Amendment jurisprudence makes it very difficult to address a lot of this, um, but but I do think that 
um, the, the, the case that the Democrats are making here against the president, it sort of goes to this idea that this is fundamentally un-American in a way that, that strikes at our democracy, such that if the scheme was successful, then it's not free and fair. Um, so ultimately, I don't know, right? Because our system is one in which we can't really regulate political lies. Uh, but I do think we have to acknowledge that. And, and I go back to my earlier point, we have to earn the title. Right. If we are a democracy and if our elections are, in fact, free and fair, I resist the idea that voters being influenced by foreign um, powers constitutes free and fair. Yeah, that's powerful what you say. And I want to let it sink in. And maybe one of the things that we should do is, is bring today's conversation to a close and commit ourselves to you know revisiting this topic as part of our series, because these are important, really important questions. Um, you know, if it's okay just to have some final tentative thoughts on on this. I mean, I think it, it, it cuts both ways. And, and if you're concerned that Trump himself deprived voters of a free choice by the attempt in cheating that he engaged in, which I understand why people might think that, I, I also think you, one has to at least grapple with the question that denying him the right to be a candidate interferes with the free choice that his many supporters have, and it's taking away his party's candidate because his party clearly wants him to be their candidate. So so figuring out what most promotes democracy in terms of voter choice, voter sovereignty, you know, may be tricky, which is, again, another reason why we're having these conversations th- this year. Um, I also think, you know, this distinction between Domestic disinformation and foreign disinformation needs further analysis on our our part. We do like to think of American elections as being an American enterprise. After all, it's only Americans who get to vote, and so there is an appropriate sense that it's our community. On the other hand, if it's not disinformation coming from abroad but just ideas, we've always thought that foreign ideas are part of our First Amendment discourse. We've been, you know, uh, persuaded by Adam Smith's views of economics, and some people like other foreign views of economics, and some people like other. You know, so we've never been afraid of, of uh, intellectual inquiry, regardless of the source. Um, again, you know, Putin is very different if he uses his military to attack us, and I don't want to deny that that distinction. But again, is the attack? a dismantling of, of the capacity to make a choice or is the attack an attempt to influence the choice? I still believe that distinction is worth worth pursuing. So I, 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 it seems like what we've done maybe usefully today is just started the conversation. I'm delighted that we're having this conversation. We are definitely not finishing it and we hope our listeners uh, want to continue to, to cogitate with us uh, in helping us think through these important questions. I totally agree. The conversation has been great today, and I look forward to taking it to, um, to different places and seeing where we go.